Bring the Jury. I'm here with Luke and Brian Sheely of the Sheely Law Firm here in South Carolina, offices in Charleston and Columbia. Um, this is the Bring the Jury podcast where we talk about a wide variety of different cases happening across the nation. And today, for our season finale, <laughs> we will be um, just chatting with these two guys about some of their own personal experiences, trial experiences, and cases that they've had over the last decade. This is one of those those moments when our actual work life interferes with our podcasting life because we haven't had a chance to review certain cases that we might have been following because we're in the middle of preparing for our own murder case that starts in a week. So, kind of been in the weeds. Sorry, everybody. Um, but... But, I think this is <laughs> well, this, a great episode. No, it gives us more of an opportunity to do what we want to do anyway, which is talk about ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> so that's great. All right, so we're just going to start it off, kind of take us from the beginning. Talk about maybe your first case that you all tackled together, just a notable case kind of early in your career together. Well, probably the first one we ever did together, and we're, going to, we're not going to use actual names of even former clients with cases long resolved, but was a, a case where the allegation was murder in, in a prison setting and our client was already doing life for murder. And the case was one where he doesn't have a lot to lose. He wanted his trial. He denied it. But the allegation was that he shanked somebody over some money that may have been owed to him. And he was ID'd by a couple other inmates, of course, serving a lengthy sentence. And he had nothing to lose, but he had some things in his mind to gain. I mean, it was in South Carolina, murder is a non-parolable offense. But his, how long he, had he already done in prison? His, his one was one of the older murder charges that still was eligible to possibly get parole. Yeah, he had done probably like 20 years already. And then had this, the thing he was mostly concerned about was that he was in severe kind of lockdown based administratively on serving life for murder and getting a new pending murder in prison. So his, his, restriction, his, his life was very restricted. And, you know, objectively prior to being charged, he was really fit, spent a lot of time working on his physique. Lifting boulders on the, in the yard. Yeah, literally like home workouts. Yeah. <laughs> but when they took away all his privileges, he just stuck in a cell pretty much all day with very limited recreation. So he... He went from this kind of physically intimidating guy to then kind of this little shrunken version of himself, which really yeah, I mean, helped, they, helped the way he presented to a jury. The prison put him in what they call supermax, which is like lockdown in the prisons. And he would get like one hour of wreck a day, which really wasn't even outside. He, he would get... He'd be in his cell all day. And Isn't it called like the Q? Or what are they, what's like the nickname for it? Is it the Q or... Well, he would get to walk... Or the like shoe. A, the shoe, right? Well, well, well that's a special housing unit. That's something a little different. This okay, is super max. Super max. Super max. And so he would get to walk around in like an eight by eight room. Well, the first time we ever met him, it, we had to go through like ten concrete doors. And I, then, I remember we met him. Remember what he looked like? Well, he was attached to a leash and he had this shield over his face to make sure he wouldn't like spit or do anything or wild. Or bite or something. It was very much kind of a Silence of the Lambs kind of thing. 
And so we were younger. We, we were younger lawyers back then. That made an impression on me. Yes, it did. <laughs> <laughs> um, al- although he never, I was like, oh, all right. He never acted any kind of dangerous way towards us, but he was treated that way by the prison. Um, but it was hard to have like a real private attorney client meeting when he's attached to a leash, just kind of the door mostly closed. Didn't we demand that he, they take the leash off at least while? Yeah, I think they're like your funeral, but um, they, yeah. <laughs> but it was a whodunit case. Sammy wasn't pleading. I said his name, but he wasn't pleading to anything. So that was an it's an ID case, identification, and so you had two inmates identifying him, but. There wasn't any blood. There wasn't any evidence. They couldn't. They shook down his cell right afterwards. Allegedly, they couldn't find the shanks. They couldn't find anything. And he's like, "I don't know what you're talking about." I mean, his his cell was as neat and tidy and clean. He had all these sneakers lined up, all perfectly white. There's no blood spatter. There's nothing. And now when they did search, they found like 10 shanks. And so I remember the prosecutor, was a young prosecutor, one of them, and he put all his shanks up next to one of the testifying witnesses who was doing like life or rape or something terrible. And they just put him like within arm's distance of uh, the witness. And we were like, uh. <laughs> and the, I remember the lead investigator talked about uh, suitcasing things, which is basically like, you know, moving shanks in and out of facilities in your own internal suitcase. So they, t- they, <laughs> they turn over this dorm, you know, they shake it down instantly, and they're looking at everyone's rooms, and they find mm. 10 shanks in the dorm. Mm. And this was, now this was an AIDS dorm. This was a segregated dorm oh, yeah. in the Department of Corrections. So that's the other part of the setting. Where, where people have HIV, they segregate them at that time. And, and our client... You know, when, he, when he caught the murder bid and he was doing life, he didn't have HIV. But this was such an old school environment back in the day. They actually used to have, and we learned this from working the case in the prison system, they used to have conjugal visits with the inmates where they could have people come and have relations. Uh, Congress, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so he caught AIDS from one of these visitors that he was allowed to have um, serving his Senate. So, but they, you know, I don't, do they still have an AIDS? Yeah, I don't think so. And that even I think kinda, that's frowned upon. But, um, but that but, was what he was. But Sammy was not the type of guy that could ever testify in his own defense. But he, he basically shrank up into a little tiny old man. And you guys threw the sweater on him. And we get, we, you know, appearances matter. So yep. we, that was the beginning of the Charlie Brown defense. So we figured, well, they don't, you know, they're going to talk about him being in prison. We need to make him look cuddly, soft, approachable. <laughs> and so we put him in like a Charlie Brown sweater. And he Remove had these, the muzzle. He had these, right, the he had these broken glasses and he just read his Bible and kind of did this number throughout the whole trial. Well, I was sitting next to him and he would say unintelligible things nonstop. Right. <laughs> kind of under his breath. <laughs> but what we came to learn was he had a, a lot of real influence in that particular dorm. And so as we got to the trial, I think O'Brien discovered that the, the room that they were 100% identifying as his cell had you know, lockers in them with numbers. And we realized kind of towards the end of the middle of trial 
that they had searched the wrong so room. What, what we <laughs> discovered through investigation in this was toward like the last day of trial or close to the last day of trial as we were trying to figure all this out. Cause yeah, we liked it that our client's dorm or his cell was pristine. That was good. We, you know, there was information that like he did this because there was a cart runner that was running drugs that didn't either got on his territory or didn't pay him or something. So that was bad. And the fact that he was doing life in prison for murder, that was bad. And he was ID'd. And, and people were saying, you know, our guy did it, but like there was no evidence. So, but I did determine towards the end of trial that he very, that was not his his room that they had an evidence he had so when when this murder happened SEDC has their own internal kind of like investigators that come rushing to investigate and Sammy had such influence over the dorm he had paid off guards well that was an assumption that was my that was my assumption to showcase some other dorm as the as the dorm that was his for evidentiary purposes so it was either wild incompetence or they searched the wrong room. Yeah. Um, so that was an interesting aspect. Another very interesting aspect to this case. I remember I mean, we had these witnesses that, and again, this was an AIDS dorm. So like these folks were not well. And I remember they had, the state had one witness that they had, we, I think we actually had to find it for the state because we thought he was somewhat beneficial to us. But like, they brought him in a hospital gurney into the courtroom. Yeah. They, like, rolled him in, um, which was kind of a u- unique trial dynamic. Um, yeah. But, yeah, so that case. But it was not guilty. <laughs> the state yeah, failed, the state well, failed yeah. to prove its burden <laughs> um, beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. And so we, we could not put up a case. So we didn't introduce any evidence that you know at that point we had a client that was not able to assist us i mean our our interactions with sammy were kind of like hey you're ready to go to trial and he was yep and you got anything you want to help us with and he would (laughs) smile and he would he was i'm not pleading i'm not pleading he was he was writing his notes (laughs) and i was next to him They look like that. <laughs> they, and, you know, like pens were disappearing off the table. Uh, paper clips were going, getting suitcase various places. I have no idea. But when you make for a good shake, later. And the other thing is, you can't really prep a guy that's in supermax. You really, it's difficult because, like, physically they're not well. They're locked in a box for twenty-three hours a day, and. It really was a case designed to make the state meet their burden. And I remember just us saying they haven't met their burden. There's no blood. There's no evidence. I remember our co-counsel at the time, who has a pretty... He always likes to tell stories about himself and openings or closing. And I recall him talking about equating this to a pig hunt that he had done. And there was blood everywhere. And this would have been just like that. And it was, it was a gory scene. But... But our guy's room was just completely clean, forensically clean. And, you know, so that's the way, I mean, was this guy guilty? I don't know, probably. But did the state meet their burden? No, they did not. Um, and the jury didn't feel convinced about that. So that was the system working. 
And he, he was very happy because he got out of his lockdown Supermax situation back to regular population. And he's still serving out his original life sentence. And so, you know, no harm, no foul. But that was our first murder case together. <laughs> and it was a success. Right. There you go. And we, do, and we do things a lot differently than we did back then. But um, Oh, yeah. Way different. So, Luke, before we got on, you were talking about a case that you had uh, involving a flight attendant. Is that right? Or what? Well, yeah, um, that was pretty high profile case that I had, um, when I was at the public defender's office and I would do the appeal in private practice, but it's, it was an allegation of a domestic argument with a guy who was dating this woman who was a very successful and attractive flight attendant who lived in Charlotte and he lived in Columbia and actually they made a whole TV show on Oxygen Channel about it. Oh. It's called like... Who plays you? Well, it's, it's just... It's kind of cheesy. <laughs> a dirty criminal defense lawyer. Some, some I think at the time... Shadowy figure. Yeah. I basically refused to be interviewed because I was doing the appeal at the mm-hmm. time. But it's called like ch- Chained Heat or Scorn something. Um, but the, it was a pretty gruesome allegation where they claimed he killed this woman and then took her body to a different county in, in the trunk of, of her own car with the aid of another girlfriend and then set it on fire and then took, looted her bank account while calling numerous other girlfriends Ooh, um, bad on the ride home. Ooh. And so we, it was a big investigation with multiple agencies from Charlotte, from here. And this guy had no, no record, was middle-aged, very well-spoken, and worked at a nuclear power plant and was, you know, very sympathetic generally and said, look, you know, I had, our defense was self-defense that he, she wanted more out of the relationship than he did and that she attacked him with his own gun in his home and, it, you know, the gun went off in a struggle and then he basically panicked. So we had to kind of own the fact that he, during his panic, he made a terrible mistake and... Mm wrongly covered up evidence and that was a, a case where we tested South Carolina's stay your ground laws before they were really even until print the ink was not even dry on the law practically no one knew how to do them and we ended up you know also really testing law enforcement's policies because they they were attributing a lot of things to his confession that he said never happened but the thing at that time they didn't record their interactions with um, mm. defendants, suspects. What year was that, Luke, when that incident happened? Because now they always video record. Well, they do it because of that case. Right. Because we made such a big deal of it. What year was the incident? I think it was like 20... 2009, 2008. Well, Luke, how are you able to make a big deal about the confession and their kind of accounting of it when it wasn't recorded what did you do well obviously he testified vastly differently to what they claimed he said they, mm-hmm. they claimed he said these very incriminating things but it's not in a statement and he's like no i didn't say that and so he would detail kind of their techniques which were very heavy-handed but also the one of the investigators and i had a quite contentious moment because i was aware that this investigator did record some cases on occasion 
but it was like with a childhood friend of his who got charged with murder and he, when he investigated that guy, he actually did record it. And so I brought that up during our cross-examination to show his double standard and how he knew that recordings can protect people and he, he's mm -hmm. willing to do it for a friend but not for anybody else. Mm -hmm. And it became quite contentious and I think... Uh, Is this the guy that threatened to fight you? No, that was a different guy. I've got a little plaque in my room. When the, it became so contentious that we took a break, probably a court-enforced break, and one of the one of the jurors was documented by the court reporter going, "This guy's an asshole." Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they were talking to me or about they're their talking about investigator, <laughs> but um, but we ended up ultimately he was he was found not guilty of murder. Um, but guilty of voluntary manslaughter. And so he, he got a much lesser sentence. And then I was so invested in that case, I took the case on, on appeal for seven years. <laughs> um, well, it had everything that you like. It had self-defense. Mm -hmm. It had kind of bad, dealing with bad facts, the worst facts after a killing, like looting bank account, calling girlfriends, setting a car on fire. So that was a challenge. Mm -hmm. It had dealing with an area of law that I would, I would have to say is now one of our favorite areas of law. Mm -hmm. Stand your ground, um, you know, essentially codified self-defense, but for the duty to retreat. Um, that case was your, is that your first and only appellate foray? Yeah. Uh, Court of Appeals twice, Supreme Court. And then I petitioned even for the United States Supreme Court, but they did not want to hear that case. <laughs> I was heavily invested in it. Um, yeah, that was a good one, but um, that was a little bittersweet. But And there is some made-for-TV Oxygen Channel series about it. It's called, like, Unchained or, like... Burning Fury or something. Somebody wants to know, so did he take the money from her account? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, so that was confirmed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we had to kind of eat, own those bad facts. I mean, okay. he, he went right up to her ATM after the fact. Oh. He was never charged with that. I mean, I think the defense um, was, he was a... Uh, distraught. And it, well, he was an... <laughs> he didn't know what to do, so he no, stole her money. I think the defense was, I mean, it was self-defense, but he was an a-hole. I mean, yeah, I mean, he, he, was, he was simultaneously, we had to live and, and really explore the concept that he was simultaneously dating like eight women at once, but she was very much invested with him and like kind of got mad at him because he just wanted it to be very casual. And so that was what his testimony was and that enraged her because she was looking for something more. But it was, you know, it was a missing persons case I mean, they couldn't find her for like a month and then they tracked her phone to his house. And but so that was the first, I think the first um, stand your ground case officially done in South Carolina after the act. I mean, I know there was Duncan, but this, Duncan kind of well, said we get an evidentiary hearing. No. D Duncan had not come out. It had not? I mean, it may have, this right. the trial may have occurred, but Duncan had not come out as a case. But right. Anyway. So that was wild. I still um, check on him from time to time, and you know he's he's doing all right. <laughs> but that was a that was a tough one. Very contentious, obviously, from the 
state's perspective, we received, and it, it got at least regional media attention, but it was pretty high profile and high pressure. So that was, I think, it certainly was the first standing ground in Richland County, maybe the first actual request for an evidentiary hearing in South Carolina. Yeah. Um, so that was self-defense. We talked about Sammy as an ID case, identification. That's one good old way. I mean, most of, it seems like a lot of our cases are self-defense. Mm-hmm. Um, we're saying that, you know, someone was justified in doing what they're doing, but, you know, other defenses would be, you know, just like false confession, which is really tricky. We've had one of those. We've had a false confession case. So that's <clears> tough. That was the young boy or the younger. Well, we've had a couple false confessions, but this one went to trial. Mm. And is we still have a PCR on that? Mm-mm. Well, this was a pretty infamous case because it was a killing of a mother on Mother's Day. And the state prosecuted the husband twice. And our client was a star witness. Have we talked about this one before? I think so. And it was the, it was like his friend or something? Yeah, our guy was kind of like the nerdy hang around friend. Little weird, but generally friends with them, and he claimed to witness this fight between husband and wife, where this stabbing occurred, and the, and the husband is objectively doing things to get the suspicion of law enforcement, like taking the wife and pretty much dumping her body, literally throwing it like in the side of the ER, out of his van, and say like bitch bled all over my van and stuff like that, you know, and he, and, and he was out cheating on... Language loop. Sorry. Language. And he was out cheating on Mother's Day. That was in the record. So the state liked those facts a lot and thought the cheating would be good motive for he and the wife to get in an argument. And our client was their star witness for two trials. And then finally the guy had a, was acquitted... And so then the state decided, well, we want to take a harder look at this. Let's look at some fresh eyes on it. And by that time, our guy had moved out to California. And they re-examined a shirt that the victim was wearing. And they tested a new part of it. And lo and behold, they claim it had our guy's blood on it. Now, our guy's blood was always on the scene because they... He, he claimed originally in the first two trials that he was hanging out earlier and he cut his hand on an apple. Yeah, and so he just happened to bleed. So like, you know, they're always, in retrospect, as we looked at this, we were always like, they were, if I wasn't the guy's lawyer, I would say, hey, cops, you were so just invested in prosecuting the husband because that's always where you look that you ignored just like obvious, like, Evidence. Um, our client had given like basically like eight different statements that explain mm-hmm. his blood and everything else. So those prior trials and the apple and now the, his blood on, on her shirt, which would be, it's different to like leave your blood in the kitchen as you're cutting apple, but to have it on her shirt, that they were like, okay, we need to go talk to him. And so they tracked him down all the way out in California and confronted him with this and put him on a polygraph. Mm. And a polygraph is a, is a very serious interrogation tool. It's not admissible in court of law, but when you put someone on a polygraph and you tell them they failed, 
and they better come clean because the machine is saying you're a liar, that can make a lot of people tell you things. Um, and our client ultimately confessed in California to killing her because he made a move on her and she rebuked it. And he was like, well, your husband's out cheating on you now anyway. And they got in a scuffle where she got stabbed. And so that is how the case came to us. So it was an interesting trial in the fact that we, our best defense ended up being re-prosecuting the husband because that's what, if it was good enough for the state of South Carolina for two different cases. I mean, that would be, that would have to be a reasonable doubt, right? <laughs> right, you would think. And so, so it was a very tough one. All these, all these law enforcement officers were pretty conflicted because I mean, careers were being ended in that case because and, the new theory of prosecution was we got it wrong the first two times. Sorry, so our like, bad. <laughs> the lead investigator was like kind of thrown to the wolves and he was sticking to his guns. I mean, that was an interesting cross that I, I got to do where he was like basically agreeing with me that he still believed the husband did it. He believed his investigation was the best <laughs> investigation possible. And he got him to admit, I still believe the husband did it. And that should normally be enough reasonable doubt, right. but our guy confessed. Our guy did confess, and we had to treat the case for various reasons. Various offers were turned down, offers probably in hindsight that he should have taken. And he insisted on saying, well, that was a false confession. I didn't do this. It's just like I always told police. And so we spent a lot of time um, trying to educate the jury on how Confessions can be falsely coerced from somebody when they feel it's kind of like a bear or with its foot in a trap. I mean, an animal trapped like that would rather chew its own leg off and hurt itself severely, um, but it'll do that to get out of the trap. So that's the idea that you incriminate yourself, hurting yourself severely, but you think you've gotten out of the trap. So we did spend a lot of time and energy with a, a good expert trying to educate the jury on how that can occur, but just simply they didn't buy it. And this was, they took his confession quite, and his, his own testimony was not, Ooh, it was a video confession. Too. It was a video confession. Oh man. Um, pretty compelling. And he went, he went down on murder. Um, and so that was a tough one. We did end up making some law about areas of, um, what what police are allowed to say and how forthright they have to be to a judge when it comes to getting a warrant because we had a, an issue in that case where we didn't feel that those officers, when they were getting our client's warrant, they failed to kind of mention all the history of the case before them and that, that a judge, having had that full picture, should have probably would have felt that they couldn't get the warrant or needed more information. So they kind of left out all that stuff that would tend to exculpate our client which is the fact that they spent two trials prosecuting the other guy so that did make a little footnote of, of legal history but unfortunately our client went down on that one yeah and we have a reoccurring Friday reel mm -hmm. Hannah what is it? it's shut up <laughs> Fridays and so if our client had listened to that reel but here's the problem with that client he had for years been basically a state witness Mm -hmm. and had kind of felt like a level of comfort. I mean, no one feels comfortable being a state witness about a murder, but he was like, yeah, he was 
in the fold. He was in, he was those guys had him on speed dial. And so like when they came up to him years later in California, he just kind of fell right back into that. And then they put him on the polygraph. Mm-hmm. And that was bad. Um, was that the only false confession case we've ever been forced to put up? False well, confession is tough. It's the only one that went to trial. We have had, we've had clients that objectively did falsely confess under pressure. Like what? I know who you're going to talk about. Well, we had a, a young client who was like 17, 18, very... Not the sharpest tool in the shed, but his neighbor had been really badly... Um, someone entered the sliding door of her home. Actually, it was his friend's mother. And two people hit her, sexually assaulted her. It was dark. She didn't get a good look. But they, through the rumor mill, got to his co-defendant, who confessed under some you know standard, tough interrogation practices by this particular officer and he confessed and said that our guy did it too so when they went to our guy they used the same tactics and said your buddy has already told told us you did it which he did and our guy gave said things that were wildly inconsistent with the evidence because that that's a, a hallmark of a false confession is the guy is just trying to say things again to get him kind of out of that bear trap but you know Regarding the sexual assault, whether he used a condom or not, it was totally different than the actual evidence. You know, the whole setup was different, but he ended up saying he did it. And so when I got... Well, Luke, let me ask a question. Did the fact that he said things that were inconsistent with the evidence that time prevent him from getting charged with that heinous crime? It did not. <laughs> if you say you do it, even though what you're saying is really inconsistent with the evidence, you're going to get charged. Or at least he did in this case. So he... When I first met him, he's like, well, I confessed to home invasion and rape, but I'm innocent, Luke. Help me. And I was like, oh, man, why did you go and do a thing like that? Um, And so we worked really hard establishing his alibi, investigating the case. And finally, what solved it for us was the DNA evidence came back and it showed that he was excluded um, the suspects definitely left their DNA on this woman, and it, it also not only did it exclude him, it matched another guy who had had kind of a history of this kind of thing, and matched everything else. And he ended up getting our clients finally got their case dropped, exonerated, and the other guy got prosecuted. And thank 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 goodness for DNA. I mean, he did sit, sit in jail for about six months. And, but it was a prime example of how, you know, the, the techniques that police can and learn to employ, they will get a confession out of the guilty guys, and that's good, objectively, for society. But those same techniques also can get a confession out of the innocent folks, because it's that pressure to cough up something that cops want to know. So it can be problematic, and then, you know, that's a whole other chapter of season. right but this was one of those cases and thankfully for the dna and and our hard work um that he's out there being his sweet little weird self and i, I hope no, no one ever accuses him of anything ever again because he might he might say because <laughs> we know him <laughs> It's a people-pleasing problem. 
but uh, yeah, false confessions are not easy because it's very hard for a juror to sit there and go, I'm putting myself in that client's shoes. Well, I don't, I can't ever imagine I would say something like he did if, if it weren't true. Well, all jurors feel that way. Mm-hmm. All law enforcement can kind of say that same thing too. I mean, the, some of the best interrogators have such good training and techniques, even without a polygraph. Was he polygraph? No. He just, there was this one pretty notorious investigator that would get a lot of confessions. He was on this case. Mm-hmm. He, real big guy, he was, he was very good at the, the read technique and other investigative techniques, and he would get confessions. What's the read technique? Is it like an acronym or is it? Yeah, it is an acronym, but it's just, it's a whole I think we're talking about, we could do a whole pod on the read technique. A lot of that has to do with your positioning, good cop, bad cop, building rapport, intimidation, Mm -hmm. threats, body language, all that stuff. Um, But it's a technique that they get trained on, so. And so while... And polygraphs are not admissible in court. You know, something we have um, on very serious cases, we'll do a private polygraph of a client um, and try to see... You just did one, right? We've we done a couple weeks ago. Um, <laughs> but if they're good, we will take it to law enforcement that we trust and say, take this down to your polygraph examiner. Um, we've had a couple cases like that resolve themselves because our people will pass them. Um, but, you know, they're not court ready. Not court ready. No. So someone has requested uh, maybe a lighter story. And I'm remembering <laughs> one that you guys told about when you guys were working a case and the tale of two jurors that uh, fell in love. Over the course of the, the trial, do you remember that? Oh, that was um, talk about the case as well, but also that was Barry. Remember, the uh, they were like holding hands. So, well, this this case, I don't know how light it is, but there there was but the a, two jurors that fall in love. There was a love nice. story, but this was so this was we were defending mm. a case where it was a pool hall murder, mm. and we were arguing self defense of a bully. And then as our guy was trying to figure out his next step after the murder, he got in a position where he was forced to defend himself once again with his AR-15 with a, with a number of officers that were trying to uh, bring him in on the charge. And so um, this was in a very, this was in Edgefield, South Carolina. It's a very kind of rural county, um, historic county with lots of bloody bloody Edgefield is, mm-hmm. is his nickname because there's all kinds of bloody things that happened there but but yeah I mean we lo- Luke you want to talk about the pool hall and the t- I put this well, I thought we were talking about the jurors we are going to talk about it but I put I put this under the category of, de- of defenses so we've got ID we've got self defense false confession I've got a category called it didn't happen like S didn't happen and then I've got one category called when, when cops lie um, and I would put because cops don't always tell the truth and I would put this under the, the unique kind of subcategory of it didn't happen to where cops lie cops lie um, it's a cops lie case so I'll, I'll, I'll start it by saying 
we picked this jury. It was a very lengthy jury selection process, a bunch of strangers. And there, there were two young people that... Strangers at the time. So after a jury gets seated, we can talk about that process, but for today, they were kind of on opposite ends of the jury box <laughs> for this week-long trial. And as the, the days kind of continued on throughout the week, they got closer and closer and closer. Um, and then by the end of it, they came out like, and they'd obviously bonded over the experience. And when they were, as soon as they got out of the courthouse, we were kind of going out through a little different exit, trying, they were like holding hands. Yeah. Um, and they were total, total strangers, but they were holding hands, walking down the square of beautiful Edgefield during Christmas. I remember the Christmas. Wow. What a Walmart Christmas tree. Christmas tree was up. The mu- Christmas music was playing oh, in the wow. in the square. It was like Groundhog Day. And, the, and, the, and these two young people were holding hands and walking to, presumably, their cars. Finding but, justice and love at the yeah. same time. But let's talk about the justice. So cops, <laughs> cops lie. Do sometimes cop, cops lie, Luke? Uh, why, yes. Why? Tell, let's hear about this cops lying on this case. Well, I mean... So we have two cases in one that we forced to try together. One was a shooting at a pool hall on video, which we claimed was self-defense. Um, it was on video, and we lost that part of it. <clears throat> I'll just say that. But the part we won was the, that an hour later, they, the police looking for a shooter and knowing who it was followed our guy, and, and one, the officer in particular, who we feel was untruthful, um, claimed to have a, a beat on our guy, and he went down a dirt road, which he did. And the cops following him to now, up. Now the two counts were of attempted murder on officers. Yeah. And so our our guy was a little scared. He wanted some time to cool down, and he did go down this dirt road, and he backed his Mercedes into this clearing right off the road, and was like, "All right, that's it." You know, I just wanted to, you know, get somewhere safe. I could do this on my own terms, but these guys are coming. So he cracked a fresh Coors Light. What was he drinking? Coors Light. And he had these NASCAR sunglasses on. He, yeah, just, he, he had himself a sixer. Yeah, and he's just standing in the apex of his door, like with his arm up. His Oakleys. His Oakleys. Were they white? White frame Oakleys? They're like... They were wraparounds. They were like sure. ring, like hyper-color, like reflective wraparounds. Ah, okay. Um, those are cool now, I think. And he's thinking, all right, the gig's up. You know, these guys are going to stop me. And, you know, that's fine. And what police said was that as they came into the clearing, our guy's lying in wait with his AR-15 and just waylaying them as they get into the clearing. Now, why did he have an AR-15 in his vehicle, Luke? Well, he had all his guns in his vehicle because he was moving out. That was part of the pool hall conflict. He was breaking up with a girlfriend. It was a source of a conflict. He had his, all his guns, clothes, safe, he had, he had medicine. A, he had an arsenal of firearms. He had a lot of guns. And, and a garoot. A garoot. A garoot, yes. What's a garoot? That's that French decapitation, choking wire. Oh, yeah, we've talked about that. we talked about that. Yeah. yeah. But, so those cops were telling a, a naughty, naughty lie. Um, and what our guy said was, no, I'm sitting there drinking my beer, knowing that I'm going to surrender. And all of a sudden, the, main, the cop in, in the lead just starts doing a drive-by shooting on me. And I get shots tearing across his chest. He ducks. He got shot in the shoulder. He got shot in the shoulder. And he's like, kind of a good old country boy. And he's like, well, I'm not going to let you hunt me. I will defend myself. So that's when he starts returning fire. Mm. And so we had to really figure out what was what in this case. 
This is the, is this the reenactment? This is the whole thing. We've talked about this case before. We, we great, did. great video of, mm-hmm. oh, of the, this gun battle. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, it's not, we actually no. use kind of some behind the scenes footage of, of those photos on our socials yeah. a lot. I mean, none of it's great, but it, it is a gun battle. Well, oh, yeah. long story short is that we were able to prove that the cop was not shot at in a perpendicular fashion as he crossed in front of our client that he actually did the shooting through sound analysis because he was shooting a 40 caliber Glock. There's a very different sound between a pop, pop of a Glock versus the of an AR-15. So number one, based on sound analysis, he was shot first. Also based on the impact points of trajectory analysis, I, the the cop was shooting very much perpendicular versus where he said he after being fired upon he did he he parked his car and got out and shot no it was not at those angles and um, the shell casing count was off that cop uh, shot several times from within his car with those shell casings ejecting inside of his car and not out where he said he would be so his casing count was off his mag count was off. Um, and the funniest part was this cop was like about six, three, about two eighty. He really filled up the kind of front. Oh, he was a big boy. The driver's seat. Like you're not. And so he claimed because we had a, a bullet from our client in self-defense go through the, the frame of the B pillar behind him. And it ended up in a steering, like right in the middle of his horn in a steering wheel. So if, if you're this big old boy, it would have cut right through you. This cop was never hit. So he tried to say that only by the grace of God, as he drove by our client, and I was like, so I had to bring up his size and, and, and discuss and get him to agree. Oh, he, he was not defensive about that. How he filled up, how he filled up um, that, that vehicle. And so what I was showing was that he was out of his car, parked, and behind it when that bullet hit otherwise it would have just cut him in half and i think i said something like you must have been made of fresh air or something <laughs> like that well i just remember like the problem with this whole second crime scene was that the officer so what we established through science was that these officers did a drive-by shooting on our guy right it was scientifically proven and they were all like oh no man we would never do that we'd never do that <clears throat> but like this was a rural town police department and when they were at this crime scene where everyone, literally, the chief investigating officer, let's think, was the ex-husband of our client's then-girlfriend, who was the cousin of the guy, the victim, the guy bully, the bully of the pool hall. So that's like, and so they're all sitting around investigating the situation, and then like, get the, it comes over the radio, they're like, the guy, oh, he's... He's driving down a dirt road and they're all like freaking out. And so all these cops go running from the pool hall and we got their body cams and they're all like diving into patrol cars. Like this is like the best thing that's ever happened. This well, one of course, was- the, the bad cop who did the shooting, his body cam, he did not have one that day. Oops. Mm, so convenient. We, so we, conveniently we couldn't um, see any shooting coming from his car. But like these officers were so... Jazz. Jazz. Like this one guy, his body cam, he had ACDC playing in the car, like (laughs) Thunderstruck. Thunderstruck. And he was like driving around. And and cops are driving with like, they're working their radios. They got their shotguns. 
like up on their laps, like literally like driving with their shotguns, like in one knee. This one officer, he was listening to the radio, the police scanner, just in his couch, shifts over, drinking a cold one, and just leapt up in the <laughs> Like these, we were, so part of our job at this trial was to show how poorly trained these officers are. Like one of the cops had a criminal record. And he had impersonating a police officer. Before he ever uh, became a cop. So like, it was just poor training. Um, but I like, I like to think that the love from that, those two young folks. I was wondering how we were going to tie this back in. The bonding, the, the, the longingly uh, romantic stares in that jury assembly room would have said, all right, we can believe what these people are telling us because anything's possible. We found love back <laughs> we here. Found love so like, these defense lawyers are saying that we should not believe these officers when they're saying that they didn't do a drive-by shooting, that we should believe the science. Okay. Because I'm feeling, I'm feeling magic happen right here. Back this there. is chemistry right yeah. now. So like anything's possible. We believe in the science, and so. Um, and so you guys had a successful outcome with that. So yeah, not guilty on the attempted murders on the officers, which honestly is pretty difficult to accomplish. Yeah, I would mm-hmm. imagine. You guys, you guys have had quite a few. And then they were guilty of love. In the, in the, <laughs> guilty in the of love. Bed. There you go. I'll make sure to really emphasize that when I edit this pod. Um, you guys have had quite a few cases in which cops were victims, or, yeah. Yeah, we've had a couple of death penalty cases where, mm-hmm. you know, it's obviously not laughing that light. Um, yeah, it's not like jurors falling in love. Right, you know, police officers get shot and killed, and that makes you death penalty eligible in South Carolina. So, we nothing funny about those, but very serious, and we were able to resolve both of those with life sentences so that was good for our client but just very tough 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 stuff so um one of the most light-hearted if anybody's looking for funniest cases were no one well it was a robbery of a post office mm. and the case comes to me as a young public defender um and they've got my guy arrested where he's, he's supposed to have jumped, like you're waiting in line at the post office and you jump the front counter, basically, where the people keep the stamps and their money. The money was gotten, and this description was a young man with dreadlock hair between 20 and 25 years old that actually had an FBI sketch artist who then was being chased by a postman and ran like 300 yards away through this apartment complex that was behind the post office. I was always really impressed with the postman. He was, he, he was getting after it. He was booking it. And he was, he was not, he was going to get that money. And he was, he was chasing, but he wasn't fast enough because obviously the, the young man who was between 20 and 25, allegedly <laughs> is quick. I feel like we're going to get to this. But way. they found a wig in the bushes on the path of flight. And so they tested They tested this wig. What color was the wig? It was purple. A purple wig. Wait, I thought the person had dreads. Well, we yeah. testing random wigs. That's a good question in the first place. But the description was a young man with dreads. One, one witness said it almost was like he was wearing a mask with streamers, kind of like a bicycle streamers. Like old gray? So we had a couple different descriptions, but... They they got a DNA hit from this wig, and lo and behold, it comes back to my client at the time, who just got out on parole for bank robbery, 
and previously had he basically let's just say this he spent most of his adult life in prison but he was bald he was completely bald no dread how, how old was he and in his 50s Ooh, wow so not, not very very high. inconsistent with the allegation but we had this dna problem to deal with so now i ran into this client the other day on the street and he's doing quite well and we had a little moment and he's working at one of my favorite restaurants in the kitchen but um but the trial was really tough for him and so he basically said look I didn't do this, but here's, I'm like, well, what are we going to do about this DNA in this wig? I mean, how, how are we going to, and he says, look, I don't know about that, but I, I will say that, you know, my, I used to live there with my grandmother right there. There's apartments behind that post office. And, you know, I spent a lot of time in prison and it kind of makes you see different about rom romance and relationships. And I like everybody, girls, boys. And, you know, when I got out of prison, I would like to feel sexy. And sometimes I'd put on my grandma's purple wig. <laughs> and I would go as, out. As one does. Uh, you know, when and I felt sexy and I would go to the clubs and just feel good about myself. I was like, all right. And he's like, now that apartment, about a month prior to this post office robbery, it burned down. And I was like, I'm going to be able to get some records of that. And he's like, yep. So I found records. And he's like, you know, the fire department came. They hosed it down. The place was totaled. The people just were picking through. And a lot of our belongings were out there. And I think that wig was just out there as kind of like wreckage of the fire. And so he testified to that very thing to explain why his DNA was on the wig. And it wasn't because he put it on as a disguise to do a post office robbery, but because he liked to be feel sexy and pretty and feel good. And he also had an alibi. And so we're like, what, what's your alibi? He goes, yeah, I'm hanging out with Gerald under the bridge, you know, drinking. I drink there every Tuesday. And we're like, really? So we found this old guy. Gerald. <laughs> Gerald. Now Gerald's house was actually under a bridge. Basically. Well, it was right next to the bridge. Right. And so they would hang out there. And there was a really funny cross-examination where the prosecutor was trying her best to get our alibi witness to crack. And he was this just grumpy old guy who said, yeah, I had a scheduled drinking appointment with your client on the next day during the robbery. And she's like, oh, yeah, well, what were you talking about? And, you know, and this was like two years prior. And, he, and I'll never forget, he goes... I don't know what I was talking about. Telling lies. Man talk. <laughs> so, you know, just talking about telling lies. Man talk. And, of course, he got the whole courtroom to laugh. And he was like, what were you doing two years ago? And she had no response for that. And it was a hung jury. So the jury couldn't make up their minds. And ultimately, after that, we got a deal to make the case go away. But it was wild. It was kind of a wild. It had it all. Alibi, ID, sexy wigs. Yeah. Meanwhile, the whole time, though, like, the funny thing about our client who was in his 50s, he would, you know, one of our main defenses was that, like, well, you, you're you old. The, the eyewitness thought this person was 20, at best, 25. Someone extremely athletic who vaulted this counter in Paul Butt and the fit uh, postal worker. Right. He came in to testify, I mean, was in shape. Right. Mm -hmm. So, but for whatever reason, our client liked to brag to us about 
how when he was in prison all those years that he was on the prison boxing team and he had all these like welterweight <laughs> championships and like he was also on the track team. Aging like fun. And he was a long distance yeah, yeah. runner and he really did have this perfectly young face because he's like, <laughs> he's not spending a lot of time outside. I mean, he's, you know. Yeah, he's, he's pristine. So I'm like, don't tell us he's how. He's probably also using grandma's lotion. So we're like, we don't need to hear about how fast and young you look. <laughs> But um, anyway, that was a wild one. But I saw him the other day. He's doing well. He's on straight and narrow. Everything's good. That's great. So. Nice, nice. Y'all have quite a few uh, alibi cases. Is there, mm. Are there any other like notable ones that you guys kind of want to touch on today? <sighs> well. Was Sher- Sherman the alibi? Or well, one of his? We, Sherman is a client that we've successfully won two murder cases of his. And... He was there on both occasions. Mm. The first one was just like a bad drug situation, drug deal, that he went with his friend to this house to get some weed, and then the the guy that was selling and his friend that was buying just got si- absolutely sideways with each other for no reason, like locked eyes. And like, you looking at me funny? What you looking at? It was like one of those things that was weird, and they just both started drawing their guns, and Sherman's like, oh, what? And so I remember Sherman was just like, as soon as I saw those guns, I was out the door. Oh, that's right. And so technically he was there, but when the shots got fired, he was like two blocks down the street. (laughs) Um, You know, we did have an alibi case one time where our, our client was the drug dealer for a girl that got killed and strangled and her apartment was set on fire. And, you know, he's on video, like, right, you know, before. And then we were trying to assert that, you know, he was, he had long, he was long gone. This was a crazy case where, you know, she, the victim is telling people that a member of law enforcement that night was coming to kill her. And so not only was it an alibi defense where we were saying our guy was there and then left. And then let's say 20, 30 minutes later, you know, someone else comes and does the killing, but we had a lot of witnesses that were saying that the victim is saying that this guy who's a cop is going to come and kill me um, for various reasons. And so, you know, we had a couple of witnesses that were kind of speaking the victim's truth from the grave about that issue. You know, it was supposed to be about an affair that was going on where she was, you know, having, having this relationship with this officer who was married and she was going to out him unless he left his wife. So that was kind of the situation. And really, and this is a long time ago, but when we were living this case and defending this case, it really almost felt like, you know, the movie Training Day. Because, you know, this particular officer, like, you know, owned that complex. Like, was a narc. Like, every, everybody knew about this guy. And so, but right before the killing and before the whole apartment got set on fire, this cop car shows up. There had been no 911 calls, no calls for service, but the video was so bad that you can't see who's getting out. We just know a cop car shows up right in front of the apartment. And then shortly after, the whole place goes up in in a blaze. And then we have these two witnesses saying that this guy was coming to kill me that night. And our guy was like just the last guy on the scene. And he was just like, yeah, I, I 
gave her some drugs and I left. Um, that was a real tough case because, you know, we did have to call the officer as a witness and it, it, this was a third party guilt case. So it was an alibi case and a third party guilt case. So we, our alibi was basically, you know, trying to suggest he was back at his own house at the time the killing happened through his self, but he, the problem was he lived in the apartment complex. So we did cell phone triangulation that weren't, wasn't a whole lot of help because he was basically in the apartment complex. And then we had some alibi witnesses that kind of were able to help establish that he generally was back at his apartment around that time, but they weren't like the best witnesses. But um, I think the thing that hurt us the most on that case, well, it's, it's incredibly difficult, even with witnesses that are saying a cop is coming to kill the victim that night. Um, her, her rape kit also went missing. It was checked out by law enforcement for no reason, no legitimate reason, and then returned in a way that no one could even tell if it was actually her rape kit. Mm. So that was a big issue. Um, the autopsy of the victim, they always check like certain, you know, certain things like checking someone's uterus is very standard on an on a autopsy along with rape kit and everything else. All that was not done in this case, inexplicably by the pathologist, and you know, our whole theory was, well, she's pregnant, and that would lead to questions about, you know, who's the who's the father of the children of the child. Um, this was also a case where she was killed with her own bathrobe, bathrobe, uh, bathrobe tie, and so the question became, well, where where's the bedding in this case? The bedding was missing, but you know, these other officers that were with the same agency. Like, we're basically saying they found bedding in the dumpster and they kind of brought it. Oh, sorry, this the officer that actually was our suspect showed up to the homicide investigators with this bedding and said, Oh, hey guys, this is my this is my block. This is I'm the narc on this on this complex. I, I found some uh, bedding in this dumpster and we had video footage that the dumpster had already been completely emptied by the dump truck earlier that morning. So, how had the bedding been there? So, I mean, we had eyes all over that. So it was a crazy case, but um, the big, the best thing for the state was they had a weak, but albeit kind of in the zone DNA hit for our client on the ligature of the bathrobe, the tie that was used to kill the victim. Now our client, you know, and so the DNA, so the expert was basically able to say, yeah, it's either the client with your kind of chromosomes or someone, someone, a male in his family could be a source of this DNA. And our client's uh, male um, relative, his uncle, actually had serviced the victim's bathroom like that week. It was a janitor. It was a janitor. Apartment. Where, where a bathroom would have been hanging. So, you know, the biggest thing was in that case, we had a federal snitch come through the jail. A likable guy a can a character um and he you know he was coming through county jail to tie you know serving a federal sentence to tie up some loose ends some state charges he had and he looked took one look at our guy and started talking to him about you know what are they trying to say and um he said our guy totally confessed to him about you know certain details that you could really only get either from discovery from the evidence um and he got up there and basically said, yeah, this guy confessed to me. And so that was really problematic for our case. But that was a wild case because 
we had to call this officer to the stand and he had gotten a promotion from the time before the trial to in the middle of the trial. He had been elevated a couple of ranks mm. and that was interesting. And then we had to Mirandize him on the stand, which was quite interesting for a member of law enforcement. Um, but our guy, um, yeah, it was hard to overcome that information, but that was, that was, uh, alibi and third party guilt of an officer, which is very interesting. Mm. But yeah, that, that case had me, uh, I don't know, I was like scared to go to sleep at night thinking like any, anytime I see a cop car coming down my street, that was, uh, well, that's when I started carrying a gun all the time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you start making, uh, and a groat when you need it. <laughs> and a Keep a groat on you at all times. But yeah. Well, I know that y'all can do this for hours. Yeah, we can and tell some stories. So there's plenty more stories. So if you know, uh, if you guys have any questions for these guys, feel free to reach out to us on our social media pages. Um, we would love for our listeners to go and leave us a Google review and mention to bring the jury the podcast. Um, that would be fantastic. Just Google the Sheely Law Firm and uh, you can do that. Um, but yeah, we're going to wrap it up for today. We are celebrating our season finale. We began at the beginning of the year talking about the Alec Murdoch trial um, and kind of just kept this journey going. Um, but we are wrapping up today. We're going to take a three-week break, and then we're going to return again on Monday, July 17th. So go ahead and mark your calendars, subscribe to this channel, follow all that good stuff so you don't miss it. We'll be back. Feel free to reach out to us with any cases that you would like us to talk about, or we can keep telling more stories. As always, you can follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, all the things. This episode will, the full episode will be posted and shared on streaming platforms and YouTube. If you missed any parts of it and you would like to go check out the full thing, please feel free to do that. Like, subscribe, review. And yeah, this is Brent, Ben, Bring the Jury, season one. Bring the Jury. Bring the Jury. Mm-hmm.